That being said, we are in Revelation chapter 19, and we are picking it up in verse 11, going through the end of the chapter, verse 21. The word of God reads as follows. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for the truth that is before us today. And God, we ask you to speak to us. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to hear your word spoken. We need to understand your word is true, it is holy, it is righteous. And Lord, may we respond appropriately in our hearts to the truth and to the authority of your word. And Lord, may we, as a result of today, even though we're, we're talking about judgment, we're talking about the battle of Armageddon, may we also understand your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a, an incredible portion of scripture. You know, last week we looked at that passage, this first section of scripture here, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, a divine time for those of us who are a part of the church, a part of the bride of Christ. And it would seem as we read through the scriptures here and understanding that the book of Revelation, as we've been talking about, isn't necessarily in chronological order. It sort of zooms out and gives us a big picture view. And then at times it zooms back in and gives us details. And chapter 19 is sort of a zoom in and give us some details of things that have already been told to us. But it would appear to us that this marriage feast of the Lamb happens before this thing called the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, that's what we're sort of understanding here as we're reading through Revelation 19 together. So in verse 11 this morning as we come to this next section, and your Bible probably has a title or a subheading, something like Christ on a white horse. Uh, Verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From this point forward in the book of Revelation, 19, 20, 21, and 22, this phrase, I saw, becomes very prominent. Ten times it pops up. And John uses two phrases frequently throughout this book. He uses the phrase, I heard and I saw, because remember, this is a vision, this is a revelation that God is giving to John that he might write it down and relate it to us. And earlier in chapter 19, we saw, I heard, I heard, I heard. And now we're into a section where he's saying, I saw, I saw, I saw. So what does he see here that he records for us? He says, I saw heaven opened. I can't imagine what that would be like. That God would give you or me or someone a vision of God And that in that vision, the first thing we see is we see heaven open. And how is it open? Is it like a giant zipper? 
Is it like hands that reach in and sort of like a piece of cloth and pull it back? How does it happen? John doesn't tell us. He just says, I saw heaven opened. And he says, behold, a white horse. Now, often when John is allowed to see into heaven, he just sort of sees something in heaven. Like in chapter 4 and 5, remember John was allowed to see into the throne room of heaven and he saw what was happening in heaven. But here in this situation, something very distinct is happening. Something is coming out of heaven. More importantly, someone is coming out of heaven. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him, notice if you have a, a new King James, it's capitalized. He is capitalized, who sat on him, the horse was called faithful and true. Right away, we know by the way this is speaking, this has to be Jesus. And in righteousness, he, capitalized, judges and makes war. So remember back in Revelation chapter 16, we had encountered these words. Revelation 16, 15, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame, speaking, <coughs> excuse me, of his second coming, which is what we're seeing here in chapter 19, verse 11. And then again in Revelation 16, that was 15, Revelation 16, 16, it says, and they gathered them together to the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. And remember when we went through chapter 16, we said, only place in the Bible the word Armageddon is mentioned, and that's it. Verse 16, it's just mentioned there. But here in chapter 19, we have Jesus going out to fight the battle of Armageddon. So that's what we will see in the remainder of our time here today. It's interesting as we look in this chapter and we read through these verses, here are some things we learn about our Lord Jesus. And you would think after everything else we've seen in the scriptures from Genesis 1-1 up to this point that we know pretty much everything there is to know about Jesus, but we don't. Here we're learning that his character is faithful and true. Here we are learning that Jesus has a divine job. He has a commission to judge and to wage war on those who are the unrighteous. That Jesus has eyes that are a flame of fire that speaks to Jesus' ability to see through everything and to bring judgment even with just a glance from his eyes. Jesus has many diadems upon his head, many crowns. And sometimes in scripture, crowns are spoken of as like that laurel wreath, which is a, a reward, but... Uh, the crown of the righteous, the crown of a king is called a diadem. And this, to me, stands in direct opposition to, remember earlier, as Satan, as the dragon is described, he's, he's referred to as having crowns on his head. Remember, the Antichrist in every way wants to be what Jesus is. And he wants to deceive people by acting like Christ. So the Antichrist also had crowns on his head. But here Jesus, we're told, has many diadems, many crowns upon his head. Jesus has a secret name that no one knows except he himself. Jesus is wearing very specific clothing, and that clothing is a robe dipped in blood. Now, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it, but just to begin to sort of, uh, you know, populate your mind with these images. Jesus is called the Word of God. So he has a name that no one knows except he himself. He is called the Word of God. He is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He has a sword coming out of his mouth, and that 
uh, harkens all the way back to the beginning of the book, and we'll cover that when we get there. And then it, we are told that he commands with a rod of iron. So this talks about the judgment and the war that Jesus himself will bring to the situation. The interesting thing about this war, and you've probably heard a lot of this stuff through the years, but we're going to clear up some of the myths that have been propagated about the Battle of Armageddon. The interesting thing about this war is that Jesus brings the heavenly host with him, and we understand that to be that the saints, the church, and perhaps those uh, Old Testament saints as well, other people, the the, um, tribulation saints, that he brings them with him in battle. Uh, So we aren't told specifically, is it the church, is it the tribulation saints, is it the Old Testament saints? We are just told that he brings a heavenly host with him. People have kind of inferred, who is it that he brings with him? And so uh, I do go with the fact that I think it's the saints. I think it's the collection of the saints. That's my opinion. But the point is, whoever goes out to ride with him in this war, here's what we know about them. The victory is won without any military help from the faithful. Jesus himself fights. We don't fight. We get to ride behind him on the white horses, but we don't fight. That's the first thing to know. The victory is won without any military help from the faithful. This army has no weapons, no swords, no shields, and no armor. And they have not come to fight, but to watch. They have come not to assist, but to celebrate the Messiah King who himself will do the fighting. He alone will will descend into the battle by the power of his spoken word. Do you remember back in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 14, Moses wrote these words. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again and no more forever. That, that speaks all the way forward from that day to this day when Jesus goes out into the battle of Armageddon. And then later in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17, we find these words. It says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. You see, on this day, when we ride into battle with our Savior, our Messiah, our King, we won't have any armor, we won't have any... Uh, implements. We won't have any bombs. We won't have any super powerful weapons. We will be behind the most powerful weapon, the Lamb of God. And remember, remember earlier in the, the book of Revelation, as we've been studying through uh, these things, it says that they should fear the wrath of the Lamb, that enigma. You think of a lamb and you think the cuteness and you take your kids to the petting zoo and they play with the lamb. But here on that day, the wrath of the Lamb will be poured out. And there are many scriptures in both the Old and the New Testament which anticipate this scene, and we could make an entire uh, study out of this. We could look in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, We we could go to a number of places and, and just spend time studying the battle of Armageddon. But in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, here's what we find recorded about this day. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. 
On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east and west, uh, and by a very wide valley that shall form, and so shall uh, one half of the mount move northward and the other half move southward. When Jesus comes in this second coming on this day, the Mount of Olives will split. And when that happens, now the battle of, of Armageddon will begin to take place. And if you ever have a chance to go to Israel, uh, I know they will take you there, but just sort of north by northwest of the city of Jerusalem is the Valley of Megiddo. And that is the area, and I remember the day like it was yesterday, it was actually the year 2000, that we were in this bus and we rode and we came over the hill. And the bus driver stopped at the top of the hill and came on and said, this is the Valley of Megiddo. And we just stopped and we were like, wow. Because we're envisioning the, the blood of whoever, you know, coming up to the bridles of the horses and just the entire, you know, valley as far as the eye can see, just covered with people. You just envision this heavenly scene in your mind and you're like, what an amazing, an amazing thing. And we are told in Revelation 19, 12, speaking again of Jesus, that his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 14, we were told that his head and hair were, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Then in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, the church of Thyatira, uh, these words were written, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. You see, Jesus has these eyes for a reason. And we are described, they are described to us in this way so that we will understand. You know, we can say it, but do we get it? That Jesus sees everything. Jesus sees through everything. We are told that the word of God, which also his name is called, is able to judge even to the very thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, the book of Jeremiah, there's a prophecy that says about man, it's a truth, but also a prophecy that says, uh, our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who could know it? You know, we don't even often know what's truly in our hearts, what evil may lurk there, or what our thoughts and our intents are. And sometimes we will say, well, my intentions were such and such, but were they really? Have we really examined our hearts to find out, well, you know what Jesus knows? The word of God is able to discern the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And his eyes, like a flame of fire, are meant for us who are the faithful and who are believers and who read the word of God and study it, that we would understand whenever we think of this, whenever we hear these words, that Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire, that we understand that he sees right through and pierces the very soul of, of me and of you that he sees all the way to the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And we are told that Jesus had a name that knew, no one knew except himself. This, to me, explains a scripture earlier that was written in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, written to the church, the letter to the church of Philadelphia. And here's what that says. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. We'll get to that in the next few chapters. And I will write on him my new name. 
What is the new name of Jesus? I think it's this name that no one knew except himself. Because the other names are recorded for us. Even if they weren't revealed heretofore in the scriptures, they are now being revealed to us what these names are uh, that he has. But this one name we are told, his secret name, is the name I believe that's being referred to in the letter to the church of Philadelphia. And on him, to him who overcomes, I will write on him my new name. Do you want to overcome? Do you want to get to the end of your life and stand before the Lord one day and hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Enter thou into the joy of thy master. I I don't know why I quote King James. But I want to hear those words. Don't you want to hear those words? Because, you know, we sometimes think, well, that's unattainable. Who can be good enough to, to make it to that point? And let me remind you this morning, Christian, it's not by your own works. It's not by your flesh. It's by the grace of God. Remember, it's not by, by works we are saved. It's by grace through faith that we are saved. And he has set his seal upon us. He has given us his love. He is the one who initiates and we respond, right? The whole Old Testament law proves to us that man is inadequate to reach God. We can't please or appease God in any way, shape, or form. The whole idea of penance is false. Should there be repentance? Yes, but penance to pay for my sin or to somehow atone for my sin is a false concept. We can't. The only one who can make atonement for our sin is the Lord Jesus Christ by the blood that he shed for us on his cross. And so we enter into his presence by the blood of Christ. We are robed in his righteousness. We looked at this last week in our study. And so we're even told here in this next verse that Jesus himself, verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Why? To speak to us, to speak to the world, to show us that he is the only truly righteous one. And it is in Christ that we are saved. Uh, The epistles of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, speak to us loud and clear through a megaphone. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is not in us. As we so often think, our identity is not in our jobs. Our identity is not in our family. Our identity is not in what we do, what we're skilled out, uh, what gifts we may have. Our identity is in Jesus Christ alone. So you see, when we fail in life, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to feel defeated. Yes, failures will come because we're people of flesh, but our identity is in Christ. And so we don't enter glory, we don't enter into the presence of God by anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In the beginning, John tells us, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Jesus said, uh, answering uh, Satan during the temptation, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. 
Luke 8, 11, the parable, the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God. Ephesians 6, uh, so take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus says his name is called the word of God. You see, we have this word of God printed and written in our hands, and Jesus says he is the word. He is the embodiment of the word. He is the spirit behind the word. And this is why, if I may take a moment this morning to remind you, it is so important for us to treat this word with respect, to treat it with honor. And by that, I don't mean by being polite to your Bible, but by honoring it and allowing it to come into your life. You know, when we get up in the morning and we sleep in and hit the snooze because we want a little extra sleep rather than a a few minutes alone with the Lord, that's a compromise. And the Word of God, Jesus himself, whose name is called the Word of God, the one who will ride on this white horse, the one who will go into battle and fight for us. Our Savior, our Master, our Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the word of God, and we need to not ignore him, but we need to embrace him, and we do so, we honor him by opening his word and saying, God, speak to me. God, wash me. God, inform me. Lord, bring your word to my life. Lord, uh, let every uh, word of God be true, and let everything of man be a liar. I think that's in Romans chapter 3. I probably grossly misquoted that, but you get the sense that God wants us to be underneath the authority of his word. And you know, we need to go through that process, that act of opening God's word and submitting ourselves to the authority of his word. You know why we need to do that? Because we are prideful people. And, and we can just on, on any day get up, put our clothes on and go out the door and get in the car and act like the world revolves around us. Don't we do that? I mean, that's sort of the American way. But God wants us to learn to submit ourselves to him. You know, we have these words recorded both in in 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6, and they go something like this. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We operate under the false assumption that my body is mine, my time is mine, I can do with those whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want. Not true. We submit ourselves to the authority of God's word so that he might instruct us, so that his word might refresh us, so that we might be washed and cleansed, and so that the, our path, you know, his, his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Jesus is the word of God. Let us come to him on a daily basis and not ignore him. And I don't care if you do it on your phone or you read your, your written Bible, I'm a big fan of having this and holding it in my hand and writing in it and underlining, you know, I can't do that on my phone, uh, at least not, not the way I can in my Bible. But have your Bible and, and read it and let God speak to you. Give him whatever time you can. Make time for the word of God in your life. And as we continue in this scene, as, as it's unfolding before us, Revelation nineteen fourteen, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And again, we believe that's us. We are a part of those armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So when we are now robed in the righteousness of Christ and our our garments have changed, we're in heaven, we're with Christ, and we are no longer seen, 
by who we are and what we do. We are seen solely as being in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Remember earlier we looked at Jesus that this sword comes out of his mouth and we talked about that there are two swords mentioned in the Bible in Revelation, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 6 we talk about taking the sword of the Spirit. And that sword is referred to as, as being described within the context of the Roman uh, armor that it's a short 18-inch sword. It's called a machaira and it's used for close-in hand-to-hand combat. But this sword spoken of, of coming out of Jesus' mouth is called a long sword and it's this, the, the long sword that you would imagine someone using in a battle. And to give you a good visual on this, if you're a, a big fan of Lord of the Rings, those big long swords that they would use, it's similar to that. And this sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, this is the word of God. This is the sword of the Spirit that comes out of his mouth. And this sword, in its physical sense, could be described as a sword that was so sharp and so big and was weighted in such a way that it could slice a man in half with virtually no effort. And so this is the, the sword that goes out of the mouth of Jesus, that with it he should strike the nations. You see, he's the only one, again, who has a sword in this battle, not us, not the army that rides behind him. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. You see, when it comes to the place that Jesus had to judge, there is no mercy at that point. And we talked in an earlier study about the fact that, you know, we, we love the love of God. We love the mercy of God. We, long, we love the long surf, suffering and the patience of God. But it comes to a day, there comes a time where there is a limit to God's patience where there is a limit to his mercy. And this idea that's floating about in our society today, and it's probably been, been about for hundreds of years, that, you know, God is love. We take that one scripture out of 1 John, another place, oh, God is love, God is love, oh, God is love. You know, you, you can't judge because God is love. God's going to judge, isn't he? Maybe, you know, we're not the judge. He's the judge. And on that day, and this ought to sharpen our focus for why it's so important to share Christ with people. Because those people who stand before him on this day, and the sword comes out of his mouth, and he rules them with a rod of iron. And then in verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember the Apostle Paul had a foresight of this in the book of Philippians when he wrote, and on that great day every knee will bow, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody will one day confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether it was willingly, and for us, I assume, sitting here today in this place, we're doing it willingly. And if we were asked right now to bend your knee before the Lord and get down on your knees and say, Jesus Christ, you are Lord, you would do it because you love him. But there comes a day when those people who for all of their life stood there and went, never. I will never bend before you. It's just, just your brand of religion. Jesus is just one of many ways to God. And all of the objections that people throw up. You know, when we hear that, we shouldn't become calloused by that. Our hearts should break. That if they don't give their lives to him, this is what they will face. 
And so we, we ought to be praying for them. When we hear that, when we see that, we ought to be going, God, please help them. God, please be merciful to them before it's too late. And when is it too late? Either when Jesus comes back or you die. And, and your time is up and your number is up. The picture of divine judgment as the treading of a wine press is also appears in, in other places in Scripture. It's anticipated in Isaiah chapter 63. And all of these passages point to the sad conclusion that in the day of judgment it's too late for anyone to expect the mercy of God. There is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. The scene of awful judgment that comes from this background is in flat contradiction to the modern idea that God is dominated entirely by his attribute of love. As if to say, God won't judge. God does judge, and the book of Revelation points to that fact that God will one day have to bring judgment. His love demands justice. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Now, we aren't told, you know, it's interesting reading commentaries on this verse. Uh, I saw an angel standing in the sun. Was the angel standing in front of the sun, sort of like an eclipse, and the sun was behind him? Was the angel standing in the sun? I mean, they debate these things, and it's like, you know, I don't know. It just says I saw an angel standing in the sun. Wherever he was, standing in the midst of the sun, hey, it's possible, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into a fire, and they weren't burned, so the angel could certainly stand in the sun. The angel could stand close to the sun. He could stand in such a way that we see his outline or his silhouette because the sun is too bright to look at. Whatever, it's madness to debate this issue of the angel. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and the point is he is announcing something. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Now, in the previous passage, we are told about the marriage supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? And in that scenario, the church, the bride of Christ, comes to the table. We come to the wedding feast of our groom, and we talked about the, the Jewish symbology of, of the wedding and all that last time. And in that scenario, we are invited to come to the table and to partake of the joy and the celebration of what it means to be finally married to Jesus Christ and to be with him forever and ever. But what's about to happen here as this angel is announcing is that if you aren't invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that you're going to be eaten for supper. You're going to be on the menu, as it were. And that's what's about to happen here. He's telling the birds of the air that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Verse 18, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. These are the people who did not believe in Christ. These are the people who shook their fist in the face of God. These are the people who on that great day, and we haven't yet gotten to the great white throne judgment, by the way. That's still to come. But these are the people that God says in that day, at that battle, as Jesus goes into battle and we ride behind him, the sword comes out of his mouth and the flame of fire comes out of his eyes and he judges 
and he wins that war by simply the very word spoken. And, and let's not miss this. All the way back in the, the book of Genesis chapter 1, how did God create the earth? How did he create the worlds? How did he create the universe? He spoke them into existence. And by the sword that comes out of his mouth on this great day, what will happen? The word of God will go forth and judge people and slaughter everyone. It's not going to be some epic battle like we see in movies. It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking the word, just saying the word. And this incredible scene that we understand to be the battle of Armageddon is going to take place because Jesus says, let it be. Amen. Verse 19, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So what John is now seeing is who's leading this battle. We see the beast and the kings of the earth, and we've talked earlier about the alliances that the Antichrist had formed and how he had gotten all of these kings together, and they had bowed to him and worshipped him and thought they were you know, on the end because they were a part of his confederacy, but in the end he turns on them, the Antichrist turns on them, and they end up becoming lunch for him, so to speak, and he uses them and abuses them and lies to them, and now they're all coming before Jesus, and their armies were gathered together to make war against him, and it's interesting, uh, from the previous studies we had looked at, there had been sort of a, a turning in on one another, and they'd become sort of against one another. But it's interesting how Jesus comes on the scene, and although there are people who were at war with one another, they all in that moment ally together and say, you know, our battle's not against one another, it's against Jesus, so let's go fight him. Think about the bizarre nature of what's going to happen in that day. The Antichrist has so deceived the world, and people have become so enraged against Jesus that they are going to fight against him. Uh, earlier in, a, in another study, we had talked about Psalm uh, 2, and I'd like to read a few selected verses from Psalm 2 so that you can see that this psalm is being fulfilled on this day, the great day of the Battle of Armageddon. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let me stop there. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Do you see that Psalm 2 is happening right here in Revelation 19, 19? And here's what they, they say. They say, let, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in heaven shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision, basically holding them in contempt of court. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress and in his deep pleasure. Okay, he shall speak to them. What happens? The sword comes out of Jesus' mouth. And then God says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he's saying to Jesus, you shall break them with a rod of iron. And we're just told here that Jesus is going to rule them with a rod of iron. And God says, you shall dash them, Jesus, to pieces like a potter's vessel. And here's how he ends the psalm, Psalm 2, verse 12. And this is for all of us. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and lest you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And it's interesting how Psalm 2 describes this as, this is just a little bit. 
of the fury and the wrath of God that he has available to unleash on those who call themselves his enemies. Christ returns with his church, but not to spare his church. He returns to spare the human race. He himself predicted unless those days had been cut short in Matthew 24, no life would have been saved. Now he returns in triumph and wins the battle by the power of his spoken word, the sword of his mouth. But he speaks and the battle is over. And just as he spoke, hush be still, and the storm ceased in Mark chapter 4, so the great conflagration in human history comes to an end, just in time. Jesus the Messiah triumphs by the divine word. He who spoke the worlds into existence speaks and the enemy is slain. The battle is over and Christ and his church are at last victorious. Then the beast was captured, verse 20, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. We don't see it in our English Bibles, but these two words, captured and cast, are so emphatic in the Greek language that they, they indicate almost sort of a violence. That, 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 that he captures them and he casts them into the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire that is being described here is Gehenna. It is hell. It is the, the, the lake that burns with everlasting flame. And one of the most interesting things here, and I think some of this will continue to come out as we go forward, uh, that you know, there's this false doctrine about annihilism, annihilationism. And there are people, there are people you, when you go to hell, you just kind of, like a, a fire today, you throw something on a fire and it just burns up. And then it's gone. But what God describes hell as is, is, is a flame of fire that burns forever and ever. And the people who are thrown into it, and Jesus himself talks about this, this is a whole other study, that those people are there to be tormented forever and ever. In other words, it's not like we're thrown into a fire and like a twig and we burn up and it's over in a few minutes. It's an eternal torment it's an eternal flame, and you see, this is why we need to study these things, so that we understand that those people who don't believe in Christ, what they are destined for by their rejection of the goodness and the grace and the love of God and the mercy of God that is here today and, that, and is speaking to people, you know, hey, come to Christ before it's too late, that on that great day, when they end up, God forbid, in the flames of eternal fire, they will not be burned up and it's over, that there is an eternal torment for them that is both physical and it's soulish and it's spiritual. The entirety of their person, of their being, will be tormented and they will suffer like nothing we've ever known in the form of suffering here on the face of planet Earth. And so we need to understand that the first two people, the first two beings thrown into hell, are actually the Antichrist and the false prophet. They are grabbed, they are captured, they are seized, and they are cast into the lake of fire. And they are the, the, the prototype, they are the, the forerunners being cast into hell. Up to now, Satan and his angels have been held in another place, not hell, but they will one day be cast into hell, and we're going to get to that in the subsequent chapters and in verse 21 it says and the rest 
were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What a picture, huh? What a picture of what happens on that great day of this thing called the Battle of Armageddon. On that day on the battlefield, Jesus rides out, we ride with him. And we have nothing except our our little white robes on and our horse. And we ride behind our master, behind our savior, behind our general, Jesus. And he fights this battle. And we watch him fight it. And he judges by the sword of his mouth and by the flame of his eyes. And in a second, everything is judged. Everything is done. And, And the people who fought and raged against the Lord... They're going to be judged in that battle. And what a picture for us to understand. First of all, how blessed we are, amen. If you know Christ and you've been blessed to hear the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and you've responded to it and you've repented and turned and said, Jesus, I want, I want what you have. I want forgiveness. I want grace. I want love. I want mercy. And praise God for that. I mean, the the glorious gift of salvation that we have been given. This ought to make us appreciate that so much more. But it also ought to cause us, when we read of the judgment of God, to understand that should give us a passion for telling others about Christ. Amen? Listen, you don't have to be an evangelist in the sense of having some gift. You just have to understand the truth of God's word and say there's an, an urgency to, to my life, to my message. You know, God didn't save me so I could be, as my grandmother used to say, a knot on a log. So you can go, okay, I'm saved and now I can just live my life and do whatever I want and one day I'll go be with him in heaven. No, God has a purpose. You were saved for a reason. You know people. God put this love in my heart and in your heart. He's given us the light of the glory of grace. We are are talked about of having salt and light, right? We are to be salt and light. Paul says, uh, Philippians, we should be lights in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, right? So we are not saved so we can just do our own thing and go through life and one day die and go to heaven and be with Jesus. We are to take as many people with us as we possibly can. We ought to be dragging people, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, right? Amen? He didn't save us so we can just be a knot on a log. So we can just be a pew sitter or a chair warmer. He saved us to love him with the passion with which he loved us. And that we might give him the glory all the days of our lives. And that we might be a light when we're out there. Amen? So let us honor him right now as we partake of communion, as we come to the table. Let's honor the Lord Jesus Christ by saying back to him, thank you, I love you, and if necessary, I confess right now whatever sins and grievances and things that I'm holding on to, and bring it to the table and say, Lord, fill me, wash me, cleanse me. Amen. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this incredible story, which I know we've only sort of scratched the surface of, the Battle of Armageddon and the the great day of our God. But Lord, fill us with your love. Give us a new perspective, Lord. Change our minds and our hearts. And as we come to the table this morning, remind us of how much you love us and remind us of how much it costs you to bring this thing we call the free gift of salvation to our lives. Lord, let us not take salvation for granted let us not take any of this and just think it was 
We're just doing our brand of religion. God, this is a living relationship with you. What you have done for us, no one has ever done for anyone else. There is no form of human love that can express your divine love. And so may we be filled with your Holy Spirit this morning, fresh and anew as we partake of the communion table and as we remember the body and the blood of Christ. And may we understand that what you did, you did it for us. You did it for the Father. You did it so that we might have a way to know you, to be redeemed, to be saved. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And may we realize our identity is now that we are children, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, that we belong to you. Lord, wash over us this morning. Give us a new heart, a new perspective. And give us the perspective to look forward to that great day when we finally get to be with you and all of this is clearly understood and that we will be fully known uh, by you in in such a way lord that there's just no there's no more pretense there's no more struggle with sin and we're going to get to that lord where you say there's no more pain no more suffering no more tears no more struggle god we look forward to that so much but this morning at the communion table the foretaste of divine glory as we partake together in Jesus' name. Amen. The table of the Lord is open to all. If you know Christ, you don't have to be a member here or an attender here. As long as you know Jesus Christ, you come to the table and you partake freely. The men are passing out. We're going to sing a song and we'll partake together at the end.